Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with experts to help navigate wellness and empower all of us to make feasible changes to a healthier life and healthier world. In today's conversation, we had the honor to speak with Dr. Maria Rupa and Raj Patel, who both have done and continue to do amazing work. Dr. Maria is a physician, activist, artist, and writer who is an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the founder and executive director of the Deep Medicine Circle, which is a worker-directed nonprofit committed to healing the wounds of colonialism through food, medicine, story, learning, and restoration. In 2016, she was invited to Standing Rock to assist with medical response to increasing state violence towards indigenous people. Dr. Maria advocates for creating a culture of care as the most effective way to manifest impactful change in population health. She believes the interruption of ways of caring through colonial structures disproportionately causes the suffering of black, brown, and indigenous people around the world. Rupa is also the composer and front woman for Rupa and the April Fishes. Raj Patel is an award-winning author, filmmaker, and academic. He is a research professor in the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. His second book that he authored, The Value of Nothing, was a New York Times bestseller and international bestseller. His first film that he co-directed, filmed over the course of a decade, is the award-winning documentary, The Ants and the Grasshopper. Together, they authored a very important book, Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. Today, we chat about what deep medicine means, how we need to abandon colonial concepts, and what the major sources of inflammation are. We chat about the moral disaster in medicine that we are in. They also share their sage wisdom on the next steps that we can take for true healing for everyone. We really enjoyed this conversation, and we hope you do too. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Rupa and Raj. Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, I read your book in like one sitting, so, <laughs> and lots, lots to discuss, but um, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I didn't know that was possible to do that, so it's good to know someone can read it in one sitting. <laughs> It was half listening, half reading. So we would love to just start off with how did you get involved with this project and how did y'all become teammates? Well, we met long ago when Raj was a GMO tomato and I was a fish on a, on a stage um, in San Francisco um, protesting industrial agriculture, GMO, um, yeah, industrial agriculture. I was playing with my band and Raj was uh, in a beautiful costume and um, we became friends through that and recently learned that we're relate we're related. I mean, who knew um, through, through marriage, um, my grandfather's brother's wife is Raj's brother's wife's. Yeah. So somehow related to Nicki Minaj's cousin's something oh yeah. god yes <laughs> yeah. wow interesting yeah. family tree <laughs> but no we we're part of the same ecosystem in san francisco involved in you know a social change and dialogues around food and health um raj's wife is the um, incredible meninder kalon who's uh, was involved in starting the dell medical center and we all became good friends um and it was through that friendship that this project was incubated. Amazing. And so what is deep medicine? Deep medicine is so many things. Um, speaking to medical students, Raj, do you want to take a crack at it first being the non-medical person? Yeah, well, I mean, it, I, I feel vastly out of place. Uh, ex, you know, it's like mansplaining, isn't it? Uh, but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, I mean, I, I think that the, the idea of deep medicine uh, is something we came across just as, I mean, in part as an antidote to the sort of shallow individualistic medicine that looks at the body as both the 
the, the site of problems and the cause of problems. Uh, with deep medicine, we offer a different understanding of the term diagnosis. Uh, so, you know, obviously medical students are, are now well practiced in the idea that, that their job is diagnosis, which is a kind of storytelling. It's a, a story where uh, you, you, you start with the, 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 the sort of sea change in, uh, in someone's life. And because of your storytelling, you go back and explain why it is that someone has a disease. Uh, and then you, you prescribe something. And then uh, because of this magical story, in the end, everyone lives happily ever after. And our understanding of diagnosis is both to locate disease and illness outside the body, but also to locate the, the kinds of stories that we need, not in the sight of the, you know, the, the student or the, the doctor, but to understand it as a mutual process of, of dialogue, not just between patient and doctor, but between uh, the, the kinds of society in which we find ourselves and the people, human and non-human in our societies, and history. Uh, so our, our understanding of diagnosis goes far further back in order to be able to help us understand that the medicine we need right now is not the application of a tincture or the administration of antibiotics, but instead uh, a, a whole scale transformation. And that we, we, we look to the term deep ecology when we thought about this expression, deep medicine. So instead of ecology that just focuses on how humans can live better on planet Earth, ecology that's not human centric. And for us, medicine that is deep is not individual. It's not centered on the individual, but rather understands the systems that all individuals are a part of, um, whether those are microbiological systems or macroeconomic systems, that we have to um, understand how to diagnose and treat things at the level of systems in order to see the kinds of health outcomes that we all deserve. Um, and so that is where the term deep medicine is encouraging the abandoning of colonial concepts of medicine, colonial misunderstandings of who we are, even as individuals. Um, the science today of the microbiome um, uh, just ablates our, our ancient um, colonial understandings of even what an individual is. And so it's time to advance those concepts and ideas to fit what we now understand, what in many indigenous communities have always understood um, about our place in the web of life and how to reintegrate health, not just for humans, but for the whole system. Wow, beautiful answers. <laughs> so before we, you know, we dive into some of the things you just talked about and colonialism and things like that, but I want to just know how do each of you guys define health? Health to me is the ability, actually, if we think about it, it has a lot to do with inflammation. So how the body can regain its balance in the face of stress, how flexible, not just the body, but the system, um, a system, whether that system is a body, an ecology, um, a forest, how it can respond to stress. And health is that ability to respond with flexibility and to restore um, the optimum working conditions pretty rapidly. Um, and I think that applies. Yeah, I, I think that's how I see health. How about you, Raj? I, the same. Uh, I mean, I, I can I can offer you know the, the I mean the the, the the sort of dictionary definitions of health are the absence of illness and disease. But that's that's not enough, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it's it, this is uh, to, to be living in a state of health is to be also not concerned with the threat of illness and. Uh, what, you know, again, this gets to what Rupa was saying about inflammation. I mean, inflammation is a response to danger or the threat of danger. For us to live in a healthy society, in healthy bodies, we need societies that are free of the threats of danger, as well as the actual kind of activations of, of danger. And that means not being in the society that we're in at the moment. We need a society that's free of debt, we need a society that's free of poverty and hunger and the fear of hunger, uh, a society free of racism, a society free of, uh, of climate change. And that's not a society that, uh, you know, th that we're in right now. Uh, and so, yes, uh, health is not merely to be free of illness, but to be free of its threat. Uh, and that means some big change ahead. I oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I love that you bring that up. You talk about debt, you talk about society, you talk about all these things. Um, and I just think about, you know, I'm on a rotation right now in San Francisco and I'm 
just thinking about the few patients that I had today and, you know, looking at their screen and their dashboard. And when you're looking at the whole thing, social determinants of health is so small and it's, and it's nice that it's there. <laughs> right. But it doesn't really say anything. I think it's the only thing really there is like, did this person smoke at, at some time? And it's like, it's, well, <clears throat> the air is smoky. Like the, the people <laughs> are living with their smoky, the, the apartment's like, the, I mean, it really extends so far. And even just like, is this person in a lot of debt? Like anything, it affects the human body so much. I uh, got into many arguments. I got into many arguments as they were developing this, the social determinants of health dashboard, which exists in this little rectangle on the side. And when they were developing it, they put smoking and alcohol use. And I, and I kept emailing them. I'm like, this does not fall on the lines of colonial oppression or oppression from a capitalist arch architecture. That is someone's personal response to those toxic realities. But to frame social determinants of health as a individual coping mechanism to the overall structures that drive them to drink, which is debt, being unhoused, being exposed to police violence in their neighborhoods. These are coping mechanisms for the working middle class, especially brown and black people. And so... I take issue with the um, liberal translation of a very important diagnosis, which is the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. um, and when it gets turned into someone's poor choices, as opposed to those structural problems that will 100% ensure these people will be sick, it eliminates the, it, it, it goes back to invisibilizing the social milieu that is driving illness for most people in, on, in this country. And so that to me is a real problem. Um, <clears throat> it was a problem that Martin Luther King identified when he named white liberals as the biggest impediment to the liberation of black folks in, these, in, the, in the United States. The same problem is happening in medicine and academic medicine. It's terrible because we will identify it, even if we can name, yeah, lack of housing or lack of um, access to healthcare or lack of access to food, healthy food, that these are the social determinants of health. Academic medicine doesn't go that next step and say, therefore, um, you know, we must abolish private property and just make housing a public common and public good, or we must ensure that food is a common good. Um, so that everyone has a baseline of health. We don't do that. And that, that to me implicates medicine and, um, and the practice of medicine and our institutions that have those little dashboards. It, it allows the system to recreate the violences and that's deeply problematic. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. So many things that I want to respond with, but um, I'm actually concurrently getting my master's in public health and it, does it not make sense to me that in medicine and in medical schools, we aren't also trained in the public health aspect to think of it on like a global scale and a community level and how you guys were defining health, it's resilience, but it's also resilience of your community. How can you help the people around you? So, so the, the, we write a lot about colonialism and how the colonial mindset fits into uh, into medicine. And, you know, I mean, I grew up under single payer healthcare in the United Kingdom. Uh, we have single payer there and it is fully colonized um, at the same time. So it, it, you know, single payer is important and we need it in the United States, but it doesn't spell the end to colonialism. It's entirely possible for racism and colonial ways of thinking to exist uh, alongside a single payer healthcare system. Uh, and so the reasonable question is then, all right, well, what is the colonial mindset? Uh, and the the answer to that is uh, actually, so we, we, we in Inflamed, we spend a lot of time talking about the difference between colonialism and capitalism and what they both do together. Colonialism is old and, uh, you know, the, the Romans had colonialism and uh, from it, actually, we, we have uh, the, the word immunity and that there's an important story about how immunity and colonialism go together. When the Romans were busy colonizing other cities, um, they needed a way to observe that the people they colonized were now part of the empire, but they weren't quite as good as the Romans. And so they, they observed that Romans had certain duties, munera in, in Latin, uh, that they had to perform in Rome. Uh, cities that had been conquered but were now free were civitatis liberae et immunes, 
so they were free, but they were not subject to the same kinds of duties because they were a bit different. They were immune. They were not uh, required to do the same kinds of duties. And so this idea of separate, but part of us, but still not quite as good is uh, a sort of fundamental part of colonialism. Now, when you marry that to capitalism, you've got a, a, a potent recipe where folk are not merely not quite as good, but ready to be extracted, put to work and, and worked to death. And whether those people are part of the, you know, part of colonized humanity, or they are colonized more than humans, part of the, the natural world, in, in every case, colonial capitalism doesn't merely dominate, but it exploits. Uh, and so the colonial mindset is definitely something that is about, oh, well, yeah, sure, yeah, we let them into the NHS, but they're the people who are going to die first. Uh, or, it, you know, it, it's certainly an, an idea of supremacy. Uh, but when you, again, when you, when you pair that with capitalism, you've got not just a, a recipe for supremacism, but exploitation unto death. And how that plays out in medicine, as Raj is saying, is just... Um it's truly a moral disaster. Um, and we're seeing that with COVID. Um, there's also the, the reality of, you know, when, when you're able to separate the world into self and others, and those others are tend to be black, brown, and female, um, or gender different um, than the male-female dichotomy, um, then you have, uh, when, when, when you have that kind of hierarchy that's established, you can admit who who gets to be a peer and whose ideas matter. Um, and in you know in medicine we see that you know black pain is still not registered by twenty percent of graduating medical students um, who are white don't believe that black skin is the same as white skin. Um, and I you know I see it all the time on the wards in the hospital from seasoned clinicians and seasoned nurses. Like I don't really understand that person's pain. Um, and, you know, becomes a process of re-education. Like, how can I help you feel empathy here? Because anti-Blackness has been so inculcated into all of us um, in this society. Um, and so that is part of the colonial mindset. That is part of understanding this came from a time and a place. And that time and a place was all about the exploitation of the earth and the exploitation of the people. Um, so, when we decide collectively that we're done with that because the planet can't sustain it and our health can't sustain it, then we'll be on the path to a greater, a greater future. And we hope that this book can be a drop in that river um, because that sentiment has been building for a few centuries. Yeah. And I think that your book is inspirational and it will be more than just a drop in that river. So I appreciate the work that y'all have done how, like you were saying, you, you wish that you could just impart a bit of empathy in those people. How, how do you start doing that? How do we decolonize medicine? <clears throat> well, one of the things we do talk about is that decolonization is not something we can do alone. It's not an act of therapy. It's probably not even one-to-one, -one, but it can happen. Like the act of calling people into a different consciousness is something that I do in my practice in the hospital on the ward. So when I come across that, I'll print up a paper and be like, here's a paper about our lapses in empathy towards black patients and their pain. Look, we might be recreating that right here. Um, so part of that is just education, having to go through the, oh my God, are you calling me a racist? And yes, we're all racist and that whole thing. Um, it's exhausting in the medical system, but bigger than the personal interactions, the systems level interactions. So starting to work um, to dismantle those structures um, of hierarchy within medicine. Uh, one of the things we do with the Do No Harm Coalition is that we organize with people we just call health workers. So are you an herbalist? Are you a nurse? Are you a med student? Are you a doctor? Doesn't matter. Um, are you working for health? Are you working for health of people, of ecosystems, of social systems? Um, and, and that openness has allowed us to really open our umbrella, um, like the, the who's coming into the tent. Um, and through that, we learned how to organize our um, scholarship, our learning, our unlearning together. So I think it really is um, purposefully and deliberately breaking down those hierarchies um, so that when you're in the hospital that you go to for residency, um, starting to, you know, make friends with the PCAs, make friends with the cafeteria workers, make friends with, you know, people who you are not being put into a social situation with. 
um, and start asking them what their agendas are for health in that institution, um, what their struggles are, how you can participate and, and you know, lock and step with them. And so that those are like simple, easy ways to start that process. And then there's a much deeper process of looking at how we're being trained to look at patients. So if you look at the self and other, there's no more dehumanizing experience than being a patient in the Western medical system. Um, and that's very um, sad and, and true. And so how do we retain our humanity and the humanity of other people as we're in a system that was constructed through architectures of domination, enslavement, and genocide. Um, and then once we understand that, okay, what can we take from that? That is actually good. It's not saying it's all bad, but that logic of domination is, is bad. It's not going to help people heal because it will become another traumatizing experience. And so part of that is becoming aware, becoming uh, alert, um, and reading, reading things from outside of medicine, from, you know, abolition literature, reading things from the agroecological movement, um, meeting with different kinds of colleagues who actually see their work as health-centered, um, the pipeline resistance, they see themselves as health-centered, um, and, and working together, learning from them as, as equal colleagues. Um, and that's the beautiful work of really um, getting a broad understanding of what health care means. In, I mean, in, in the book, we draw uh, on the work of other physicians. I mean, I, I, for one, if I ever fall ill, will want no other physician than Rupa Maria. Uh, but if I uh, don't have that choice, then um, I'd like to fall ill maybe in the 1960s and fall under the, the care of Franz Fanon. Um, because he, you know, he, he's, we, we, we draw on, on many physicians in the past whose work informs our own, whether it's Rudolf von Virchow or uh, Franz Fanon. And Fanon in particular has advice about decolonizing medicine because he tried it, you know, uh, before he became uh, the sort of great uh, revolutionary uh, of Algeria. In fact, while he was becoming the great uh, Algerian revolutionary, he was also um, a, a practicing uh, psychiatrist. And so he had under his care uh, a ward of um, middle-class settler women in uh, French women in uh, in Algeria, uh, and the way that he tried to decolonize medicine was really to sort of mess with the architecture that the hospital had imposed, and, and instead kind of creating common spaces where there was a film club uh, and you know uh, making accessible a printing press so uh, women were able to, to re-narrate stories about their lives and see themselves on the screen uh, and own their representation, and and. That was an important part of the healing process for those women. Uh, for Algerian men, uh, working class Algerian men, uh, what, what Fanon found was that there was no cure to be had within the bounds of the hospital. And so, uh, in fact, therapy involved playing football outside. And that meant, uh, you know, and, and, and in fact, that, that led him ultimately to, to a journey that uh, severed his connection with the hospital, in part because, as he observed, um, doctors occupy a certain class position within the hospital. The doctor always owns the land, uh, was a, a line that we, we quote from him. And that journey, I think, is, is, is really important. As, so as Rupert was saying, it actually you know, radically decentering and removing the hierarchy from the relationship between patient and doctor is absolutely important, but also, Again, as Rupa was saying, those relationships are not held within a bubble. You're doing this within a room in a hospital with a computer in the corner that's you know, and uh, all overseen by administrators who are trying to wring every last dollar out of the patient. Um, and that that itself is a colonial context that itself needs uh, decolonizing, and that involves stepping outside the hospital and you know, decentering the the role of doctors and recognizing the radical healing work that's happening despite doctors. Uh, and that's, you know, that, that, that's an uncomfortable position, but it's a radical one that, again, uh, you know, physicians throughout history have, have pointed us towards. I love both of those answers. We want to know as well, so you, we talked a little bit about how people in the healthcare system can be involved and can become more aware to help start decolonizing. And it does have to be a group, um, a group effort. How can people outside of the healthcare system or most of our, like the general public of our listeners help be involved and decolonize this because it's so important for, for everyone and for everyone's health? 
Well, I think one of the first things they can do is find out whose land they're on, if they're in the United States or in Canada, and give the land back. Um, Start working to identify tribal people who are living in those communities and see if they want the land. Um, And if they don't want the land, what, what groups do want the land who are following the principles of the indigenous practices that were happening on that land before settler colonialism came. Um, Because that act of um, rematriating land, rematriation, um, bringing back the concepts, the the stories, the seeds, the ways of tending to the land and, and the people that were part and parcel of, of the cultures that were here for thousands and thousands of years. And that led to the ecological sanity and cultural sanity of these places. That is a good place to start in the act of decolonization. Um, That's a critical place to start because this isn't theoretical. This is about repairing the wounds of colonial capitalism. And those wounds wounded people differently. So I was born and raised in this area because my homelands were colonized um, for a couple hundred years and the wealth was stolen from my homelands in Punjab. And that the work that's happening right now with the Punjabi farmers resisting the um, same capitalist chemical onslaught um, in India of big ag is, is the same decolonizing process. It's, it's resisting those entities that demand our subjugation, that demand our exploitation, and in the end demand our poor health and the poor health of our water and our soils and our food. And so, um, you know, this, this work must be done on all of these levels and working in one system, whether you decide to commit yourself to medicine or commit yourself to food or food and medicine, or, you know, um, the abolition of private property, the restoration of the commons, the water, the salmon, you know, pick one, pick two, pick three, um, and then start meeting the indigenous people around you who've been actually fighting that fight for about 400, 500 years, um, and then follow their lead. Um, and so that that work is also part of the, the important structure is that, you know, as doctors, we're taught, you know, we know how to figure everything out and we're, we're you know, bright and we're smart and we've got the degrees, but these kinds of problems require um, networks of people and networks of elders and networks of um, people who've come before us. And so that would be how I would approach the first, you know, steps. Um, and those networks are so important. I mean, the, 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 I mean, part of the way that colonialism operates is to police whose bodies matter, whose minds matter. Uh, so, you know, who can think and who can feel is precisely what's adjudicated by colonialism. So to decolonize uh, the precisely those, those bodies and those minds that have been subjugated the most need to be in the forefront. But what this suggests is that there are lots of ways for folk listening who are not necessarily fighting the fight within the hospital to, to be involved. I mean, Rupert's laid out a, a, a ton. And there, there's I mean, what, what, you know, what, what we argue for in the book is a sort of revolution of care, because if colonialism was the imposition of um, severance of care, you know, we're not allowed now to, to care for those beings because they're, they're precisely those beings from whom we extract work or uh, nutrition or, uh, you know, labor in one kind or another or value, uh, then to decolonize is to expand the universe of our capacity to care. Uh, part of that is an individual practice, but it's inevitably part of the network practice that Rupert is talking about. And uh, one of the ways to think about that is through, uh, you know, objective policy proposals like the red, black, and green New Deal, for example, uh, a uh, a set of policy transformations in this country that not only care for the world uh, by you know, uh, reintegrating ourselves with it. And so this isn't about preserving the earth, but by recognizing that actually to care is an act of transformation. It's not about setting the world uh, aside and letting it rewild while we destroy it over here. It's about recognizing that in order for the earth to, to, to be restored, 
stored will take transformations in the way that humans interact with the earth that draw on the kinds of histories that Rupert was talking about from uh, indigenous communities around the world. But also, you know, there, there is this act of re repair, uh, of reparation that's required from the global north to the global south. And, you know, we're, we're recording this in the 40 days before the uh, the COP26 summit in, in Glasgow, where, uh, you know, the global north will kind of shrug its shoulders and say, yeah, well, you know, you, you know, essentially burn, baby, burn to, to the global south. Uh, and there are duties of care that we all in the global north owe the global south. Uh, and that's something that we just have to take on. Um, and, you know, similarly, you know, if, if we are interested in reparation, then we, we do need to, to make reparation for uh, in, you know, enslavement and for the genocide and for the land theft. And if that feels like a lot, it is. Um, but it's the kind of work that is everyday liberation work. It's like the, the everyday liberation work that I do to fight the patriarchy that is within me uh, and that will, uh, you know, that I'm, I will fight the rest of my life to diminish. But that's the work, right? You know, it's, it happens, we do it every day and we'll do, we will do it every day till we die freer than we are now. And that if that feels like, like, a, like a lot, it should, but you're not alone. And again, there are movements around the red, black and green New Deal that are about a people's reparation process and a, a care revolution that absolutely you can join. You can, you can just look it up right now, sign up and start fighting because that, you know, we don't have enough time for, for, for anyone to waste. And that was really the, you know, when I was talking to my colleagues today about the book, and there was this feeling of overwhelm, like, oh my gosh, this is so big. What do I do? And I said, you know, you should get in touch with these communities who are already doing this. You don't have to figure this out. Um, this isn't on you. Um, you're not the savior. Um, and so that in that, there's a great uh, relief because this work is already happening. And that's what we seek to share in the book is how many different examples and projects there are of people advancing these new models um, that both embody care and repair. Um, and so, um, yeah, that is the, the exciting thing is that it's an opportunity to grow new skills and to meet new people who are doing beautiful work around the world. Yes, and I, I think that once you do read this book and you do feel that overwhelm, it's it's kind of good to feel that overwhelm because it is a big issue. But once you get in the space, you realize how many amazing people there are doing so much great work. And so what y'all have laid out, I think that's perfect for our listeners to like the first steps to decolonizing. So you did mention a few times that, you know, these, a lot of these ideas, the indigenous people are already doing them the right way. So how do we, do these things without, you know, co-opting it. Cause you know, you've got like the integrative medicine people, you've got the wellness people and they're kind of just stealing <laughs> from the indigenous <laughs> yeah, people. That's Thank and, you. Uh, um, it's, it's nice that they're doing it because they're kind of swinging the pendulum a little bit and kind of bringing it into healthcare. But at the same time, they are just straight up stealing it. So how do you do that? <laughs> yes. Well, I think that, um, so this goes to another level of decolonizing, which is actually, which can be actually very individual which is reconnecting with your own ancestries. Um, so most of the folks who are co-opting yoga and <laughs> Tai Chi, and um, they're like off on another level of, you know, cultural vulture, um, vulturism where they're, you know, preying on other people's medicines. Um, so going back and learning about your own ancestries and your own medicines and, and not in a, you know, uber nationalistic way where it's like, oh, look, my, you know, Viking relatives were so much better than your, you know, South Asian relatives. But, you know, finding the part of your own ancestors that were indigenous to the lands that they were from um, and what those relationships looked like um, that predated the systems of hierarchy that capitalism, that Christianity or monotheism imposed um, and look at, um, you know, try to find those stories, try to find those um, ways of relating to each other, ways of relating to land, ways of relating to food. Um, and they exist in all of us, like even in my own ancestors. So I am from Punjab and my ancestors um, were involved in the decimation of the indigenous people in India today. Um, and that happened about 5,000 years ago. So that was another example of colonial conquest that 
persists today with this, you know, um, upper caste, this casteism and this um, Hindu dominant, like nationalism that's happening in India. It's the same kind of um, horrific axes of supremacy that drive inflammatory disease. So this isn't just a problem of, you know, oh, well, the Europeans went and messed up the whole planet. Um, yes, there is a part of that story that we have to really look at, but then we have to look at also how these other systems um, got exported. And then while the British left India, just the same architecture stayed and other people assumed its power um, and domination. And so that is, you know, I think that learning to respect the medicines that are yours, you know, I'm a songwriter and, and it always occurs to me to ask the question, is this, is this song my song to sing? Right. If I'm learning a song, I think like, is this my place to sing the song? Is this story my story to tell? Um, is this, um, you know, what is the role of my voice? And the same goes with our medicines. Um, so I do think that it's important to look at wellness um, from many different angles. And I also caution that the way that wellness is put upon in our culture is a practice of individual, um, you know, plight for health. Like if only I eat organic and juice, I'll be fine. Um, and that's not true when the planet's on fire. And so it's a really good time to abandon those myths that health can be pursued on an individual basis. And that really is the, probably like the crux of our book. It cannot when the planet is like screaming at us that we all need to get, um, get it together. Um, it never has been because we have always been deeply interconnected as COVID has showed us. Um, and that these myths of separation, these illusions of separation of ourselves from each other and the whole web of life that supports our, our wellness, these myths need to be like systematically discarded um, so that we can imbibe and live new stories, old stories that really speak to our interconnected nature. And just to sort of pick up, Dan, on what you were saying about, well, you know, at least wellness is acknowledging some of some of this indigenous wisdom. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes and no. That there's, I'm not sure the pendulum's swinging back that far. Um, I mean, you know, look at things like, oh, I don't know, quinine, uh, and the way in which that knowledge was stolen from, uh, you know, from Central, well, from uh, South America. Uh, smuggled through colonial uh, and imperial uh, networks uh, through the schools of tropical medicine that flourished uh, in empire, particularly in the United Kingdom, and then was sort of spat out again to India. You know, stealing from indigenous people for individual pill purposes um, is, is something that has a very venerable history. Uh, and it's not, it's not entirely clear that uh, we're so far away from it today that, you know, when you're seeing stuff about, for example, rewilding the micro, our microbiome by using indigenous uh, poop, uh, you know, using uh, sort of feces from Yanomami uh, communities, for example, uh, that have a far more diverse microbiome and where we, where we see an association between uh, the diversity of the microbiome uh, and the, the absence of certain kinds of inflammatory disease. Uh, you know, when someone starts selling you indigenous poop pills as a way of creating a, this sort of wild ancestral domain in your gut, like a sort of Jurassic Park inside you. Uh, and that, that is meant to be the sort of cultivated internal biome that's going to make you resilient and happy. Um, you know, th that's sort of the goopifying of medicine, right? Where the, the internal microbiome is fine, but we don't give a shit about the, the kinds of relationships between humans and you know, the more than human world around them that allow this internal microbiome to thrive. And so, you know, if, if the sort of the extent of your concern ends at your sphincter, uh, then that's not a terribly broad minded uh, understanding of wellness. Uh, and um, and, and yeah, for that, people go shove it up their arms. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I do think that, that it's important for us to recognize, that, you know, exactly as Rupa was saying, that, um, that, that, that there's something quite toxic about the individualism of, uh, of the wellness industry, uh, even if they, you know, as in the very moment that they try and steal indigenous uh, you know, indigenous shit. Uh, and uh, I think the red flag around co-optation is the existence of private property. Uh, insofar as there are moments where someone's patenting something uh, and that all of a sudden uh, rules of, you know, colonial rules of private property are being used to ring fence and police 
who can know and who cannot and who can profit and who can't, uh, that would be a very red flag for the existence of co-optation. Uh, and the kinds of exchange of indigenous knowledge that we've seen are not actually uh, open source. I mean, you know, th th there are lots of indigenous communities where you have to be trusted in order to be able to get knowledge. Uh, and so, you know, we've, we've both been given certain kinds of knowledge we don't write about in the book, that we don't talk about, because we're, we are not authorized to do that. It's not our story to tell. Uh, and you can tell that people are co-opting when they are telling stories that they have no right to. Mm. That was great answers, very well articulated. The other problem with wellness right now too is it's become so reductionistic, individualism and then reductionistic where like you were saying, like you're just taking the pill, but how you have to like have an environment that feeds that microbiome. Well, you know, I mean, this is the thing about sort of blue zones in general, right? Uh, and in fact, you know, we, we, we talked to Mark Hyman, uh, our, our mutual friend and co comrade, um, and, you know, he, he was he was going off to Sardinia to study the blue zone there, but he couldn't because it was on fire. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, it, again, it was aflame because of climate change. And it's very important to recognize that these diets are located. So, in, you know, in inflamed, we talk about um, the uh, you know, Okinawa and the Okinawan diet. Uh, again, an, another place that's been so, sort of studied, uh, a, a place that is multiply colonized, you know, by the Americans and the Japanese and the Chinese, uh, and uh, in which the diet that once flourished there that was possible because of a certain kind of autonomy and a certain kind of self-governance um, is being smashed most recently because of American colonialism and the supplanting of certain kinds of dietary paths uh, with American dietary knowledge. But then more importantly, the best agricultural land in Okinawa is now a US airbase. Uh, and so the, you know, the, the important way to get the Okinawan diet is to decolonize very literally. And that's what people in Okinawa want. Uh, and so, you know, again, I mean, this is to agree with you abundantly that uh, diets are always of a place. And unfortunately, those places are being transformed either by direct colonialism in the case of Okinawa or by the consequences of colonialism, which is that the world is on fire. And that means that our sort of individual hunt for the right kind of diet so we can live to 100 uh, is not is, is utterly misguided because it severs the idea that we are related to one another to an idea that if only I get my macrobiotics from, you know, uh, whatever sort of strange uh, uh, you know, Whole Foods-esque uh, place that, that, that we go to, everything is going to be fine and that's just not good enough. And that really speaks to the limits um, of the imagination that colonial um, society has in which the colonial cosmology has circumscribed our lives so that we actually can't imagine another kind of solution that doesn't just involve popping the pill. You know, okay, well, I'm missing these microbes instead of re-entering a sophisticated, durable, long-lasting, mutually beneficial relationship with all the microbiology around me, I'm just going to look for, you know, Yanomami feces, uh, because those indigenous people have sort of worked out their microbiome. And I'm just going to try to take it. Um, but we know that microbes don't stick around in our gut if we're not in a constant relationship. It's not something you can just ask them to, you know, come up and take residence without transforming the world around you. And that's what there was an amazing study about the Irish travelers that came out, which showed that within 20 years of forced settlement of, an, of, a, of a nomadic indigenous group in Ireland, that they were, um, their gut, they lost critical ancestral gut microbes, not by changing their diet, but by simply being forced into public housing um, and away from their traditional lifestyles that it, they had maintained over a thousand years. Um, and so that is, um, was sort of surprising to me as a doctor, because I thought, oh, well, it's obviously, you know, diet plays an important role. And here the diet didn't change, but the circumstances around the body changed. And consequently, the microbe, the microbial diversity um, collapsed in their guts within, a, like in the same generation, within 20 years. Um, and once they're gone, you can't get them back um, until you rehabilitate those relationships that supported their existence being there in the first place. And so that, um, you know, what I find so fascinating about microbiome science, about neural networks, about where the science is in our understanding um, of health is that these are all systems-based um, understandings. Um, we evolved within systems. We are a system. Um, we are systems within systems. 
Um, and we cannot hope for health to be possible by just trying to tweak one piece of it when everything else around it is, um, is ailing, is pathological. Um, and so that's what we hope that people will come away with with this book is really understanding the locus of disease is not in the body. Like our bodies are doing what they were evolved to do. They're responding to damage. And inflammation is that response to damage um, or the threat of damage. And what we're seeing is the world around us that has been constructed through colonialism and capitalism will constantly damage, will con like the damage just never stops. Um, and it takes bold moves like, you know, abolishing fossil fuel inputs in the food system. That's like one move, but then also breaking up these giant farms in let California's Valley and, you know, making them into thousands of small to medium agroecological farms to do the work of caring for the people and caring for the soil and caring for the water. Um, so that we start bringing our resources um, of land and water and, and people into a better balance um, that doesn't seek to just make profit for one person, but seeks to uplift the health of everybody. Wow. <laughs> you mentioned a lot of trauma there, whether it's like trauma environmentally, historically, you know, just society as all of us in a society, how does that trauma affect our, our genes and, you know, that, that stress that comes along with all that trauma? Well, we do look at how, you know, trauma is a major driver of inflammation of the inflammatory response. It's a damage, it's a damage signal. It creates damage in the um, immune endocrine and um, nervous systems and how they're all interacting. And trauma-based care is, is critical in uh, trauma-informed care is critical in what we do in what um, health workers must be trained in. Um, but, you know, in terms of what it does, how it's transmitted, we do see evidence that intergenerational trauma is affecting genes, affecting um, genetic changes, epigenetic changes. So not within the gene code itself of a person, but with different uh, biological molecules sitting on the genes so that they're expressed differently in the future generations. And um, to me, what this says is that, you know, that racism and the traumas that come with racism, for example, or classism or casteism, that these are forms of biological warfare and that they last throughout several generations, that they are being transmitted in this way, is not an argument of you know, how people might be biologically inferior or better or worse. Um, it's a indictment of a social structure that would damage people in such a deep um, and lasting way. Um, what is exciting about the work we've seen is that some of the damage that's done to cells um, through um, through things that cause inflammation. Um, so mitochondrial dysfunction, or let's say telomere shortening, which is another thing you can look at and see the effects of stress and trauma um, as looking at the end caps of chromosomes and seeing how they're impacted is that these things are actually fluid and dynamic. Um, so while you can be wounded, you can also heal. And that healing is possible, um, you know, in a short amount of time as well. Uh, but what is critical in the healing is that you have to stop the sources of ongoing trauma and that requires structural change. Yes, absolutely. So finally, we ask all of our guests to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I was thinking about the, uh, the, the the Yoko Ono and John Lennon uh, line of, you know, war is over if you want it. The future is yours if you want it. Uh, and I, I mean, I love that idea, uh, except for the, um, the implication that if, uh, you know, all it requires is a sufficient level of desire, uh, you know, and all of a sudden our dreams will come true. So the future is ours if we want it. Um, is uh, you know, points to a, a, a world in which you know all we need to end climate change uh, and to uh, you know, end racism and to end patriarchy and to rebalance uh, the injustices of global north and south is to, is to want it enough and that's that's not quite right is it because we all want that and yet wanting it is insufficient um, but the future is ours to organize for. Uh, we can organize together uh, and, you know, for this, we need things like 
unions and communist parties and uh, indigenous circles of uh, unlearning and of, uh, of you know, radical opposition and of direct action. We need Occupy. We need uh, a, a, a sort of string of social movements that are grounded in place um, and are ready for us to, to launch and to fight back so that we can transform the future. Um, because, you know, here I am in Texas. Uh, I want a lot of things. None of them are happening in Texas right now. It's not a, def a deficiency of, of want on my part, but it is a, a moment to organize and organize hard. Um, and I, I, I feel even though things are fairly bleak where I am right now, um, it is possible to imagine a future in which we have successfully organized, but that'll only happen when we come together. Yeah, I would say the future is um is in the struggle like what Raj is saying is in the you know let's let's get together and get to work and it's not going to be handed to us it's not going to be pretty it's not going to be kumbaya um but it'll be a lot of hard work and in that in that work is a lot of beauty and a lot of um some of the most powerful moments I've witnessed and been a part of as a doctor and as a person um so the future is struggle and it's a beautiful struggle. Wow. Those were beautiful <laughs> answers. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Raj and Rupa. This was an amazing conversation. And again, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Um, so inspirational. And uh, we hope that we can help be a part of it and be involved in, in the struggle. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.